This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Army is modernizing almost everything. The effort extends from rifles used by individual soldiers to the Army's information systems and software development. Federal News Network's Scott Mossioni got an update from the Army's Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Acquisition, Logistics and Technology, Young Bang. Because of the times that we are in now, you can't really separate weapons platforms and software or the digital transformation. So I always like to say the Army is really going through an Army modernization of their weapon systems and everything else, but underlying all that is a digital transformation. And so if you think about that, my role specifically here is obviously as the principal deputy is to help with all the decisions around those type of big A acquisitions and procurements. Uh, but then my focus will also be specifically on the digital transformation. So if you think about software, data, AI, cyber, all the underpinnings of a digital transformation, cloud native, all of those type of things, I will focus and deep dive into all those areas um, and really help the Army accelerate our modernization efforts. So some of the things you were just talking about with the modernization, they go very directly into what the Defense Department is focusing on right now. That includes things like integrated deterrence and then programs like JADC2, the Joint uh, All-Domain Command and Control. Can you tell me you know, what programs that you're modernizing and why this modernization is so important to ensure that those types of strategies and those types of programs can really get going and create the force for 2030 and beyond that you're trying to get to? If you think about the defense and some of the uh, terms that you threw out there, integrated deterrence is a critical component of the uh, of the past national military strategy. It, uh, we definitely expect that to continue. And when you look at all the things that are going around across the world, right, obviously things that are going on in Ukraine and Russia, we're looking at and um, taking some lessons and observations for that to really think through how do we actually look at integrated deterrence in other theaters and other, um, let's say specifically somewhere like an Indo-PACOM. And then how do we look at those type of scenarios and lessons learned and how do we accelerate our modernization so we could actually be a joint, joint and coalition and partner-based type of strategy in that theater. And so we look at that uh, from multi-dimension. So let's look at you know integrated deterrence perspective, right? Uh, if you look at certain scenarios, we are working on other things like, you know, long-range precision fires. And what that means for from an Army perspective, it's a fires, but it's also a defense perspective, right? And so if you look at some of the things that we're doing from a hypersonic perspective or, you know, kind of uh, all of the, those things to include um, things like, you know, mid-range capabilities or directed energy and, you know, the whole PRISM and IRCA is really to do a couple of things. It's one, like things like IRCA, to get more lethality and, and distance and range out of what we have and getting that modernization and, and that fielded out to the soldiers faster. It's looking at new capabilities, like we were talking about hypersonic, to really help deter, right, um, and have an integrated deterrence um, posture. We're looking at how do we partner better with other allies uh, in other um, theaters as well, and how do we look at great partners and how do we support them so we can have a united front of allies and partners so it's not like we're going alone. And then to the same context and theme, right, the Army's not going alone 
we're going to be part of a joint in the DOD uh, component. So the things like you talked about, JADC2 is a huge component of it. Obviously, you know, the Army's contribution to JADC2 is really project convergence, where we're looking at bringing in a lot of our capabilities, getting soldier touch points, doing the operational exercise, and getting lessons learned so we can actually then accelerate the modernization, bring in the transformation and the digital capabilities to the soldiers faster. And if you think about that, you know, typically acquisitions, uh, big A acquisitions is usually taking, you know, 15 years, 20 years to field a new system or, you know, get those things out. And what we're doing, the Secretary is concentrating on the modern, six big, big modernization efforts, but really we're already fielding capabilities now and we're targeting to have, you know, 24 new capabilities delivered to soldiers, right, whether it's the first unit of issue or first unit of equipped, you know, by the year 23. And so, again, I would say the underpinning of that modernization and transformation are those things that we're doing joint that with DOD that underpins JADC2 and really has that digital transformation again and innovation. That's what's helping us accelerate the pace we're, that we're actually getting capabilities to our soldiers. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about this and sometimes a little confusing is there's a lot of different programs that you're working on in order to upgrade your IT systems and in order to bring together all these different ideas. So, you know, could you give us an idea of, of where you are in this kind of transformation and, you know, where you need to go as well? We've been on some journey from a software perspective and, you know, the Army has been upgrading a lot of our enterprise business systems, right? Whether it's things like, you know, IPSA and the personnel system and, you know, other things that gives us better visibility across the board from a software perspective. We're also upgrading a lot of things at the tactical side, right, to give the ability to have commanders get access to the information they need to make decisions sooner and faster. And so we're working on that with some of our other uh, PEOs like C3T and um, IWS as well. And then the other component of that is like you were alluding to, right, you know, there's there's a uh, component that we're working with the CIO G6 around the transport layer, right, and unifying, you know, to use their words, the uh, Army Unified Network um, to really make sure that we can plug in and how we do business in the garrison side where we have hard incomes and, you know, the transport layer with the Internet and the cloud and how do we do that at the deploy tactical side so it becomes a seamless network and how we do business here is the same that we do deployed. And, again, that is efforts that we work with the CIOG6 and organizations like POC3T. So we are looking at, <clears throat> to sum that back up, we're looking at technology and digital transformation from the software. We're looking at it from the infrastructure and transport and cloud perspective. We're looking at it from a data perspective as well. Uh, and then, you know, I think those are kind of table stakes so we can actually get to AI at scale, right? We can we have pockets of uh, expertise and, and uh, work that we're doing in the artificial intelligence space. But until we get the data problem solved and resolved, we won't be able to do it the speed or at the scale that we all want to be able to do it. So, again, uh, hopefully the, the, those areas um, – address your questions. Oh, the last part, I apologize, I didn't mean to uh, miss this one, is the cyber components, right? We have to secure everything as we're doing it now, software, hardware, and data. And so we think about that as kind of the big components of the uh, the IT or the digital transformation. Young Bang, 
Army Deputy Assistant Secretary for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology, speaking with Federal News Network's Scott Mossioni. Check out Scott's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy. His name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her. I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do, where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that 
you get everything accomplished because you know that's what everybody's looking for the goals the metrics etc but i think as you mature and you go along you start to to your point you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young you know whenever you're a young adult and you say you know i think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line and so over time i really began to i i think see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company, Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people ask me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person, 
or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 